Martha Jefferson, Grizabella, Edwin Drood, Norma Desmond. By saying those four character names, I've given the Jeopardy answer to a question that most any fan of musical theater can instantly pose. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and it is a treat for me to meet Betty Buckley. Hi, Howard. Hi. I am going to start with what was originally going to be my last question because as you were coming here in a downpour today, (laughs) you were actually Twittering the experience. (laughs) I have seen you come on to Twitter not so long ago, and my question is... For a performer of your stature and recognition and career, what compels you to tweet? I just think it's super fun. Uh, my friends and uh, my assistant, Kathy, think I'm nuts and are always trying to say, you know, get off that Twitter and Facebook. But I um, did a show for my brother in December in Los Angeles. Uh, my brother's a, a television director and a very successful one, Norman Buckley, and he does Melrose Place and Gossip Girl and Chuck and Make It or Break It and um, any number of uh, younger generation TV shows. And so he invited me via his producers to be uh, do a cameo of a restaurant critic on Melrose Place in December. So I was in Los Angeles and spent the week with him. And he's like, you've got to be in the social media. You've got to do this. You've got to be on Twitter. And I, I was like, I don't see the point of all that. And he said, just try it. It'll, you'll, you'll really have fun. So... I went on Twitter and December was having a great old time. And then he writes me, he says, uh, well, he tweeted me and he said, um, now you have to go on Facebook. So then I went on Facebook at, at the end of December. And it's just really fun. It's become a kind of really relaxing hobby. It's it's fun. So I was on my way to you and we got caught in this downpour and we couldn't get a cab. So we took one of those um, biker cabs. The petty cabs, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he was like pedaling away to get us here with his yellow slicker and stuff. So I took a picture of him from the back because <laughs> it was funny and Kathy and I, my assistant Kathy Briganti uh, and I were in this little cab with this plastic covering laughing, having such a great old adventure coming to your to do your show and uh, and we just had to tweet about it. <laughs> well, I I often ask guests what they hear from fans often at the stage door. Twitter is obviously right now a new fad. If somebody's listening to this from a couple of years from now, this could be a very arcane thing, arcane right thing there, yeah. to be discussing. But it gives your fans an opportunity, admittedly, in very small snippets, the opportunity to talk to you. Uh-huh. And indeed, you respond to them. Yeah. So I'm just wondering about that engagement. I've met some wonderful, wonderful people on Twitter and Facebook, and I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I'm doing a new play, White Lies, at the New World Stages. We're still in previews, and um, but I had to uphold my contractual obligation to do two concerts on the West Coast this past weekend, one in Torrance, California, and one in Bend, Oregon. And in both places, any number of Facebook and Twitter friends came uh, to the concerts and were, you know, yelling out from the audience and stuff. And I was like, are my Twitter and Facebook friends here? Because they were all writing to me that they were coming. And, you know, also uh, coming to see White's Lies. And it's been a really interesting experiment and experience for me. I feel... um, much more connected and just to human beings in general doing this thing. I, I know there's a kind of illusion in that, but each time someone like you know does a friend request to me on Facebook or um, or you know lets themselves be known to me as a, a person who's following me on Twitter, 
I just I find it really interesting. I go to each one's profile and check out who they are and what they've told about themselves on their profile and I'm fascinated. I you know, I love people. I'm I'm an artist because I love humanity. You know, I love to communicate. I'm a storyteller. That's my job and so the more I can know about other human beings, the more I can experience of them in the world at large, the better communicator I become, the, the more relevant storyteller I am. I think it's a real danger in show business to become isolated from your uh, the audience, you know, because that's my job is to connect to the heart and soul of every person that fortunately comes to see me uh, do what I do, whether it's in concert format or a Broadway show or an off-Broadway play or film or television. So um, I've always enjoyed that. That's the connection with other human beings. That's why I'm a performer. Well, you mentioned White's Lies, uh, which was certainly how I originally planned to start the interview, <laughs> was asking about that until I, I saw the photos but you're a Twitter from mad, Twitter. A, a madman, too. So well, you know, <laughs> I was waiting, and, and there you, you were. I saw you twittering away last night. No, never during a show. Never <laughs> no, no, during no, a I show. No, no, no. I meant afterwards. <laughs> I got home, and I went on Twitter, and you were like, I'm interviewing Betty Buckley tomorrow, you know, so what questions do you want to ask? And I thought, well, that's how cool is that? That <laughs> was, that first question was from there. But, but White's Lies, as you said, a common now off-Broadway, I must admit some people are surprised. Here is Betty Buckley, major Broadway musical star <laughs> in a smallish off-Broadway venue doing a comedy, a play, uh -huh. by a first-time playwright. How did this come to pass? Well, I was in uh, New York in February doing a new show at Feinstein's called uh, For the Love of Broadway, and it was all the – kind of classic and some contemporary Broadway songs that I've never sung in public before. And it was a really nice um, musical experience. I was having a great time. My agent called and said, there's a new off-Broadway play. My friend Jenna Robbins was one of the lead producers. Jenna and I've worked together a couple of times. And she and her co-producer, Aaron Grant, came to uh, see me at Feinstein's. They gave me the script and it seemed like a long shot that we could work it out because I live in Texas now, and I've lived in Texas for the past six and a half years, and I live on a, a very small ranch, um, but I have a lot of animals and so a lot of caretaking responsibilities. So it's it's no easy proposition for me to leave town long term these days, and it has to be a project that um, – really is going to be fun and interesting, you know, um, and will accommodate a situation where I would need to move to New York and be housed and all of that. And they were willing to do that, which was divine. And I got all the pet sitters straight and um, the caretaker of the ranch said he was fine without me for a period of months. And so, but I'm, you know, I have to stay in touch. I've had all kinds of animal emergencies that have happened in the past couple of weeks. And you know, it's a lot of responsibility, but I'm so grateful to Aaron Grant, to Jana Robbins, to the other, you know, many producers of the show and Ben Andron, the playwright. It's an incredible cast. There's seven of us. It's just a, a lovely group of people. And I, I, it's directed by a great young director named Bob Klein. I feel so blessed and so fortunate to be back in New York and to be doing a comedy that's this much fun. And I'm, I'm in love with my team. So I'm very, very happy to be here.
In the show, you play um, – we have to be very careful because we can't give away much because the moment yeah. we start explaining the show, we start giving away yes. some of the premise. Yeah. So let's just say you are a somewhat overbearing mother of an adult <laughs> son. Did you think me overbearing? Um, I think you, she's completely justified. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, it, you know, there's the, the character who comes in at the end of uh, Streetcar Names Desire believes that the show is about the guy who comes to take this crazy lady off to uh, uh-huh. to the men award. So I'm wondering what drew you to playing that kind of part. I mean, was there something in the character? Well, what about the part is what you're you're confused about? Why, I'm not confused. Why, just, why wouldn't it appeal to me? I just, mean, it, no, I'm just wondering what did. Well, I think she's fun. I mean, she's a character. She's um, you know um, a smart um, kind of independent woman who raised this boy to be a certain kind of young man and he turns out to be completely different than that which really makes her mad and so it's a real dilemma in her life as to how this son that she'd raised so carefully to be um you know her son and and i think her ego is very defined by that and the fact that he's turned out to be this womanizer and a liar uh, is just very upsetting to her. And so she takes action to set him straight. And, you know, he's a man in his uh, early 40s. And it's like, it's funny. It's just funny. And uh, she's a, a, a wonderful dynamo kind of lady and um, a challenging part for me to do. And so, yeah, what wouldn't interest me about that? <laughs> well, it's interesting about the funny because though certainly not exclusively, you know, we look at the musicals, whether they are musical comedies or musicals, we, we I don't want to parse the term. You've done a few of Pete Gurney's plays, but there's not an endless list of comedies on your Well, I did Eros resume. Trilogy for Nikki Silver uh, at the Vineyard Theater a few years ago. Right. And I've done some other plays. Um, I did uh, also by A.R. Gurney at uh, the... Buffalo Gal, which was a comedy. Um, But I guess the majority of my comedic work has been more subtly seen and by implication more than anything else in the context of, well, you know, Triumph of Love is a musical. And while that was a serious character, she was also very funny. That's true. And it was very poignant. And, you know, there's a lot of comedy in that. But, yes, I would say that the majority of people that know my work are pretty surprised to see me doing something openly, blatantly silly and funny. But uh, the truth is I'm an openly blatant, silly and crazy person in real life. Uh, crazy in the sense of funny. I shouldn't have used that word because <laughs> some people would make something of that. But uh, no, I'm, you know, I think I'm a pretty funny person. My friends think I am. And um, I'm always trying to work bits in even in the most serious like the film tender mercies i played dixie scott um robert duvall's ex-wife who's a country western singing star duvall won the academy award for the movie horton foot won the academy award for um the screenplay that he wrote it was a great part you know the kind of the, the kind of well fantastic american classic movie but the kind of role that i had studied to play to study to have the skills for for many years. You know, my favorite actresses were Kim Stanley and Geraldine Page and Jenna Rollins. And, you know, I wanted to be able to be that kind of actress, that, you know, to be able to deliver that kind of truth and raw emotional honesty. And so I studied for a long time to learn how to do that. And finally, with the role of Dixie Scott, you know, in Tender Mercies, that was that kind of part, you know, and Horton Foote was the playwright that wrote some of the greatest roles for those particular actresses, Mm. you know, in the 50s and in the 60s. And so 
it was like coming full circle into my potential. But within that, if you watch that movie, there's a lot of funny little moments where Dixie is very, you know, tempestuously funny. So I think I've always had a funny bone. And if, you know, even my work in It Is Enough or Oz or anywhere else, if, if you ever, if people really watched it in detail, I'm always trying to put these subtly, because I think to be human, you know, we're pretty funny creatures. And even in our most serious moments and sometimes in our most serious moments is when we're the funniest, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I love comedy. I, it's, it's very difficult. It's much harder than just doing something that's really straight. Yeah. We often hear that. Is there mm. is there any way to describe why comedy is harder? Well, um, because, you know, just to walk on stage, a stage or in front of a camera and just be the raw truth in the moment, for me, that feels pretty natural, you know. But to take that raw truth and lift it to the point where it's arch or um, where you're tickling people with that same reality takes, I don't know, it's almost more it's more necessarily refined, if you will. You have to take it up to another place. You know, in my evolution as a singer, I learned a lot by studying. I, from the beginning of my career, I studied all the great lady singers, you know, like in depth. And, um, you know, I when I was a young singer, um, I think my voice was very much a voice that was about the cry of the heart, you know, the um, cri de coeur was, you know, in French or I don't know if I pronounced that very well, but um, my voice, you know, just naturally contained uh, this kind of passionate longing. And uh, as a young singer, I heard that in myself and, that, you know, there was always a tendency towards that. Uh, you know, in the in the sound and in the notion of the of those kinds of songs, and I was always d- attracted most to darkly beautiful songs. Hmm. And I used to tell my pianist, you know, that the things that I liked best were like a, the the deepest color rose, you know, like a kind of dark red, dark dark red rose that just is so velvety and unfolds. You know, that kind of deep deep color. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that that's not the whole of it, and not the raison d'etre for being a singer. One time I took this long car trip. You know, I like to really drive cross-country a lot. I like fun driving cars. Like you know, I used to have a Beamer, and that was really fun to go cross-country in my Beamer. It had a great sound system, and I studied back-to-back, just kind of a comprehensive study of Ella Fitzgerald. And you know, I'd listened to her a lot as a young person, but I was studying her again. as a. I think I was in my late 30s at this point. And I was like, oh, I get it. Ella Fitzgerald takes the same material that I've always been attracted to, too, but she lifts it to a place of sublime joy. In every case, in every case, it doesn't matter if it's a torch song. It doesn't matter if it's about, you know, my heart is squeezed and broken or whatever it is. She always lifts it to this other sublime moment of joy and ecstasy even. And I was like, damn, of course. And that was, she, that was like an amazing lesson for me. Mm-hmm. You know, that it doesn't matter how poignant, how deep, how profound, how darkly beautiful the song is. The point is to lift people out of that longing and out of that sadness, if you will, or heartbreak or a wistful and in, into a point of inspiration and joy and acceptance and love and and peace, 
you know. So I love comedy. I mean, I, I for the same reason, you know, to make us laugh at ourselves, I think, is probably the greatest way to teach any kind mm. of real lesson. Well, I want to jump to your earliest days so we can get right back to New York and talk about, about shows. You, you were born in Big Spring, Texas, but pretty much raised in Fort Worth. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when did the performing bug hit you? Well, my mom says that they had me sing in church when I was two. Uh, I grew up in the Methodist church, and I don't remember that, but I'd been singing since I was a little kid. And um, my mom had been a singer-dancer, and my dad had really fallen in love with her. He was a cadet uh, in the Air Force. He was from South Dakota, Lemon, South Dakota, which is a very tiny, tiny town in the northern northern regions of South Dakota. And he was stationed in Big Spring. My mother was, uh, as a cadet in the Air Force in World War II, before he was shipped off to the European segment of the war. And my mother um, was in college at Texas Tech University, which is near uh, Big Spring. And um, so she was known as the jitterbug queen of Texas Tech, and she had really (laughs) wild red curly hair. And my dad saw her at a dance across the room and just fell madly in love with her and then you know, was shipped off to World War II and wrote her beautiful love letters and came back and married her up, as we say in Texas. And so... But her Texas roots were so strong that she, when he came back from the war and they got married and she got pregnant in the first year they were married, and he pretty much asked her to give up the singing and dancing aspirations. And my aunt, her older sister, was a dance teacher and also danced in um, the for the original Billy Rose Theater and stuff in, in Texas. And she even went off to Hollywood to be a dancer in the movie musicals. And my grandmother, uh, Mary Dilt, sent my mother, Betty Bob – this is before Betty Bob was married – to Hollywood to go retrieve her sister and bring her home. (laughs) And I think that's a really interesting sideline about our family. So anyway, I was raised by this mother who's a a former performer who, when she noticed my talent and my love for song, really nurtured that. And I had dance lessons because of my aunt from the time I was three and was uh, always the little kid that you know, was in the center that the other kids watched to remember the routine and stuff because I just loved it so much. And I remember my costumes and my golden tap shoes with the, you know, glitter on them and stuff. I just love everything about it. And when I was 11, my mom took me to see my first musical at our regional theater in Texas called uh, Casa Manana. And I saw The Pajama Game with the original Bob Fosse choreography. Hmm. And the two guys that had directed and the lead dancer and the choreographer of that production had danced for Fosse in many shows. And they had moved back to Texas. One of them grew up in Fort Worth. Their names were Ed Holloman and Larry Howard. And uh, they decided to, after spending a lot of years on Broadway and uh, doing any number of shows with Fosse, they decided to move back to Texas and they opened a school after that summer when I'd seen their production. And when I saw Steam Heat with the definitive Bob Fosse black derby, bow tie, black suits, little black tie shoes, the girl and the two guys, that you know the number that had been originated by Carol Haney and I was transported in that moment and I was like, whoa, what is that? I'm going to be doing that for the rest of my life. And I, it was a very profound experience in, for my 11-year-old self. Hmm. It was a kind of epiphany. And uh, I, from that moment, knew what I was going to be doing. I just had this vision and this uh, 
desire to become that, whatever that was. Now, I read that you made your professional debut when you were 16 in a production 15. of 15 mm-hmm. of Gypsy. Yes. Was that, and that was in Fort Worth? Yes. But um, what happened was I came home, I was a really shy kid in junior high school, and I was a year ahead of myself in school because my father had been in the Air Force and so I started school in Morocco, North Africa. Oh, so wow. I, was, I started a year ahead. And so I was always a year younger than everybody in my peer group. And I was really shy and kind of always behind uh, the curve, you know, as far as growth. And so I was kind of ignored a lot and um, treated like a bit of a nerd. And so I knew we had this junior high talent show that was just about these girls doing these line dances and they would all get together and it was all these popular girls and stuff. And I knew I wouldn't be asked to be a part of that. So I came to my mother and I said, you know, I want to learn Steam Heat for the Morning Follies. Hmm. And she had just noticed this ad in the paper for these two guys' school. And so she took me to them. And they said, can you sing? And I said, yeah, you know, because I'd sung in the church choir and I was in all-city chorus Mm -hmm. in elementary school. But they always put me in the back row and told me to blend in. And so I I always felt self-conscious because my voice had this really cutting, you know, this cutting quality to it. And you could hear me in any group of people. And so I was always trying to be quiet Mm -hmm. instead of use that voice. And so they said, well, sing this. And so they taught me the first few lines of Steam Heat. And and then I sang it. And they said, no, no, sing as loud as you can. And I did. And they all jumped backwards, you know, Mm. because I had this really giant voice. And I was very little. You know, I was very small for a long, long time. I didn't really grow until I was about 15, 16 years old. And so they became my mentors and they taught me everything about performance. And, you know, they had been these, uh, you know, Bob Fosse had been their mentor. And so they mentored me in all things Fosse, all things musical theater and turned me into a, a pretty okay performer. And so I uh, did a, a show at the Children's Theater at Cosmignano, um, a version of Beauty and the Beast, and I played the upstairs maid, Bill. And then the following summer uh, was cast as Danny June in Gypsy. And uh, I also danced in West Side Story that summer. So there following, I did shows at Casa Manana every summer from the time I was 15. So I had quite a few. You know, I played all those parts, Ado Annie in Oklahoma, you know, uh, Meg in Brigadoon, um, Susan in Desert Song, and a whole bunch of shows. And I was signed by an agent, a big agency in New York, which was then called Ashley Famous, which became International Famous, which is now ICM. But signed while you were down in Texas. Texas. Yeah. Wow. Because I was in the Miss Fort Worth pageant. I was recruited to do that. I didn't You were want... in Miss Fort Worth in 1966. I, I was. Believe. And um, I didn't wasn't really interested in that, but I was recruited because I was like the girl singer that year in town. And um, then I didn't win. I ran was a runner-up to Miss Texas, but the producer of the Miss America pageant um, saw me and thought I was going to be the next Miss Texas, but I wasn't. And so he got me invited to the Miss America pageant the following fall. The, it was the fall of my junior year in college. And um, to be a guest performer on the Miss America pageant, essentially representing all of the losers in America who never make it to Atlantic <laughs> City, which was a, a very proud claim to fame uh, for me. And so this agent's assistant... Uh, was informed by his aunt, who was a dance teacher that was involved with the Miss Texas pageant, that I was going to be performing on the Miss America pageant. He got his boss to watch, who was a big agent, whose name was Roger Hess, who's now a big Broadway producer. 
they called me then and asked me to come to New York from Atlantic City, where I was doing the Miss America telecast, which went on for a period of days, to audition for Ashley Famous. So I did. I went in and auditioned for this room of 12 agents. And a very famous agent named Eric Shepard stood up after I sang and said, sign her, and walked out of the room. So they signed me. And I told Roger Hess, who was my responsible agent, along with Eric Shepard, that I had to go back and finish college or my dad would kill me, you know. And he said, well, when you finish college, you know, you'll come to New York and we'll start representing you then. And I was like, perfect. So I went back home to finish school. And then um, Roger, through his encouragement, I came to New York because my father was very opposed to my being in show business. It was like a bone of great contention between he and my mother because my mother was a kind of stage mother, but my father was very um, resistant. And they had huge fights about it. And she would literally sneak me out of the house for my dance classes. Hmm. And so she had me performing in all kinds of talent shows and everywhere you can imagine from the time I was 11. And my father was very, very upset about all of that. Anyway, I wouldn't – because of my father's resistance, I would not have had the courage to go against him and just move to New York and cast my fate to the wind. You know, I – I wouldn't have had the gumption to do that. But because of Roger Hess's support and insistence that I come, I had the courage to come. And when I got here, my first day in January of 1969, I graduated college in 68, I called him to say I was in town and he said, you know, you have an audition in 15 minutes at the American Theater Laboratory, take your music and go. So I ran down down there and uh, I was the last girl to sing on the last day of the auditions for 1776, and I didn't even know what I was auditioning for. And I sang my hit from uh, Six Flags Over Texas Days. I sang <laughs> Rose of Washington Square, and they really liked it, and they kept me there for two hours. They taught me the violin song from 1776. They had me read for them. They did the violin song in different keys, and were uh, they liked very much that I could either sing it as a soprano or as a belter, and I got the part. And it was amazing. It is amazing. And so here you are, 21. You've just moved to New York. You are in a big, if somewhat unconventional, Broadway musical, which had, you know, the vast majority of the songs are all in the first act. Mm. Um, It was a one act piece. Oh, at that time? Yeah. Okay, uh interesting. uh So. And then you go out of town, the classic thing. Well, did you have any frame of reference for this? None. And I had no survival skills either because my, because of my father's resistance, I hadn't been really raised with any knowledge of how to be on my own, how to take care of myself, you know, nothing. And I, I had these skills, you know, I could sing and I could perform and that was pretty much it. But I remember we, we opened in New Haven to this huge snowstorm. I mean, it was like oh, huge. Right. And I was freezing to death. And, uh, you know, I was in a show with two women. What, three at that point. There was a third played by Carol Prandis who married Stephen Schwartz. She played the doozy lamb, the, mm-hmm. the prostitute in the show. And that section was cut from the show. And the two women that remained were Virginia Vestoff as Abigail Adams and uh, me as uh, – Martha Jefferson and Gretchen Cryer, the great writer, later on writer, uh, was the understudy for those two parts. And then there were 30 men. And the majority Mm. of them were these great actors who could sing but weren't really the normal singing persons from the musical comedy world. And this was really the beginning of uh, one of the early shows that was really about musical theater. 
you know. And these guys, literally, Paul Hecht played John Dickinson and Howard DeSilva was Benjamin Franklin and William Daniels was John Adams. And they were amazing. And all, But all the guys in the cast, they were so kind to me and they were like – uncles or something you know they took me under their wing they were like listen you have to layer your clothes to be warm you have to like wear a shirt another shirt a sweater a jacket and a scarf you have to have a scarf and you have to have a hat and gloves you know literally would take me shopping to just so i wouldn't be cold but they're giving you practical (laughs) living advice on how to move up north yeah was there practical advice on how to work in very much A commercial so. Broadway musical. Very much so. Because my skills were very specific and I was really a performer. And I had a real heart for acting, but I didn't I didn't have a lot of security about that because I hadn't done that much except in college, you know, as a theater minor. And so they were very honest with me. I remember Howard De Silva was a great actor and um, he talked to me a lot about acting and William Daniels and they really told me, they said, you know, this is what you really do well. And this is what you need to learn. And this is where you need to go. Go to this guy. Go study with this person. Study here. Study there. Do this. And you'll become a wonderful actress. And so I did that. I followed all their advice. And um, I you know, would watch them work every night, which was an education in itself. But it's amazing that you say you would become a wonderful actress. Here you are. You've landed a role, mm-hmm. albeit – a, a limited length within mm. a larger show, yeah. again, the way this mm. show was structured. You're lucky that these guys looked at you as uncles and not as a lamb amongst <laughs> wolves. I am lucky. Yeah, <laughs> um, I am. But, you know, you say there's this sense of dislocation. You did that show in 1969, just having moved to New York, and a year later, you're in London doing Promises, Promises. Yeah. My first question is, what gave you the confidence to leave a hit Broadway show and go to a country you've never been to? <laughs> and and how did you get that? Well, um, Promises, Promises was running at the same time 1776 was running. And I was in love with the show. Uh, so I loved the film. And I loved the character of Frank Kubelik. But more than anything, I loved the music of Burt Bacharach, you know, because I really felt like I had this connection with Burt Bacharach and Hal David because they scored my life in college. You know, mm. it's like I just had their recordings and, you know, I just loved everything Bacharach and David. And they were pretty much omnipresent in that era. Absolutely, musically. And I really wanted to sing for them. I just had this burning desire and I, you know, wanted desperately to work with Neil Simon. You know, he was like the king and and David Merrick was the producer of the show and I wanted to audition for David Merrick because he'd produced every great musical I was in love with and had learned the cast albums of and you know it was just he was also the king and so they were auditioning for the London Company and uh, I quickly learned the song Knowing When to Leave for my audition and remember I had this power broker agent Eric Shepard so I had this audition and I didn't do well at the audition I blew it because I didn't I didn't have enough time to really prepare the hardest song in the show so my inner voice, when I heard when the callbacks were the following uh, Monday, Tuesday, my inner voice said, you know what, you need to go talk to that stage manager. And there was this glorious man named Charlie Blackwell, who everybody knew in theater. It was this really tall, beautiful black man who was one of the greatest you know, stage managers in the business. Also was going to be directing the London Company, and then Michael Bennett was going to come over and put the finishing touches on it and stuff because Bennett was the choreographer. And so my inner voice said, you know, you need to ask your dresser to take off your 
you know, your gown for 1776. And it was that beautiful, beautiful costume designed by Patty Ziprod, the great Patty Ziprod, but it was had the the real 1700s lacing up the back and the panniers. And it, it was no easy task to get into it every night, you know, <laughs> certainly not twice. So I had to convince my sweet dresser to, her name was Kathy, you know, to take the dress off. And I assured her I'd be back in time for the curtain call because there was no intermission in 1776. But I had to stay in costume until huh. the end of the show. And my number, my scene was in the, you know, my little two little scenes were in the first half of the show. So I assured her I'd be back in time. And I raced over in my jeans to the Schubert alley, knocked on the Schubert stage door where Promises was playing. And I said, I need to speak to the stage manager, Charlie Blackwell. So he comes to the door, and he's this really tall, beautiful man. And I burst into tears, and I said, uh, Mr. Blackwell, my name is Betty Buckley. I blew my audition uh, you know, for you uh, for Promises, Promises, but I really know I can play this part. And I said, you know, I, I'm a good singer, and, and I'm an okay actress, but I can be a good actress, if, but I can take direction, and I'm studying. And I said, but if you would just talk to me about the part, I know I can, I can do this part for you. And I think he just was he took pity on me because I was so sincere I mean I think as much as anything I was a very um, very open very naive kid from Texas and I had a very thick Texas accent that I had to unlearn but I think that naivete you know it got me in the door and through a lot because mm-hmm. you mentioned those guys were you know they were very like uncles as opposed to you know treating me otherwise I was not conscious of anything other than my own heart and sincerity. I wasn't mm. conscious of anything else. And, and so people got that about me, I think. And they got that, that I was very sincere. Well, know, so. and that ultimately is a great aspect of playing Fran Kubler. Exactly. It's, so so in many ways, your mm-hmm. stage door plea was, was the your character. second audition. Yes, precisely. So – Mm-hmm. Was it an all-American company then that went over and did it in uh, London? Originally, no. The the ensemble was British, but uh-huh. but the, all the leads were from America. And so what happened was he said, okay, come before the matinee on Saturday and we'll talk about the part. So I went before the matinee and worked with him for about an hour, an hour and a half. And and I at the end of the session, he explained to me the dynamics of how Fran operated and you know all this. And we read the scene several times and it was a wonderful session and – I said, okay, can I come to the callbacks? And he said, well, have your agent call. And then he kind of was backpedaling. So I called my agent on Monday morning. I said, uh, you know, I worked with uh, the stage manager, Charlie Blackwell, who's directing the British company. And I said, um, he said I could come to the callbacks. And he said, no, they don't want to see you. You blew your audition. I said, no, I, I'm going to go back for the callbacks. I said, you're a powerful agent. I said, I don't care what you have to do. You know, call in a favor. Get me that audition. Hmm. And I also had that kind of gumption as a kid. I just huh. was very direct, you know, and I had a lot of that sense of, no, you, I can't take no for an answer. My mother actually taught me that when I was a kid. She would say relentlessly, she would say, always ask for what you want, Betty Lynn. And all they can do is say no and never take no for an answer. Do you answer. know my parents used to say that exact same thing to it me? It gets you far, you know, and especially for a kid. You yeah. know, I, it might not work so well as you get older because people know you're savvier and, you know, hmm. they can read you better as an older person because you're more conscious too. You know what you're doing, you know, that kind of thing. But for a young person, that kind of sincerity and that kind of I can do this, it, you know, will take you a long way. 
And so he got me that audition. I was the last, again, the last girl to audition on the last day. I went in, I sang, I read, and they really liked it and thanked me. And I left and I was walking through the St. James alleyway and Charlie Blackwell came pushing through the side doors of the theater running, picked me up, swung me around and said, go back, go back. They're calling David Merrick. So I went back in, repeated the audition after Merrick came into the theater, and they were in the dark. I couldn't really see them, you know. But when I finished, down the aisle came Neil Simon, Burt Bacharach, Hal David, all shook my hand at the corner of the stage, thanked me for coming in. And as I walked from the St. James to 6th Avenue where the offices were, my feet didn't even touch the ground. I was so so happy, Mm. you know, that I had turned that experience around. So I went and told my agent's assistant, her name was Sheila. She was a fabulous girl. I said, you know, tell Eric Shepard I didn't embarrass him. I did a good job. (laughs) And so I went back to the elevators and suddenly as I'm waiting for the elevator, I hear her running feet and she grabs me in the lobby and swings me around and says, you know, Betty, Betty, they just called you. We're going to London. And so it was amazing. And so how long were you in London? A year. You did Mm -hmm. a year in London and then came back to 1776 for a bit. uh When you came back and now, of course, I'm sort of racing through some things. You went into the role of Catherine in uh, Pippin. Yes. And I'm uh-huh. wondering how it was it was it your mentors back in Texas who prepared you to to go into a well, Bob Fosse Pippin's show? Pippin's a funny story too. Um, what happened with Pippin was um, I knew that Pippin was going to be done. Stuart Ostro, who produced 1776, was the producer. It was Stephen Schwartz's musical, and I knew Fosse was directing it. So I was beyond thrilled because I had to meet Bob Fosse. I had to audition for him because I'd been trained by these guys that worked with him, you know, and I was like all ready to go with my Fosse moves and. Uh, so my agent said they didn't want to see me. And I said that – no, he said that there was no part for me. That's what he said. And so I was like, oh, that's hard to imagine. you know. And he says, no, there's no part. So I went to one of the early previews and Jill Clayburgh was playing this great part of Catherine and Pippin who's Pippin's love interest and you know turns the whole plot around against the leading player which was Ben Vereen. And so I called Eric and I was really perplexed and I said, what do you mean there was no part for me? This is a great part. And he goes, well, I didn't want to tell you but they didn't want to see you. And I said, why? I know Stuart Ostro likes me. Why wouldn't they want to see me audition? And he said, they didn't, Betty. Trust me, they didn't want to see you. So I was like, well, if you could do me a favor when she leaves the show, you know, because hmm. uh, she'd done one film, Portnoy's Complaint, and she was Al Pacino's girlfriend at that point. And so there was a buzz about, you know, Jill, and Jill did a really fine job, but musical theater is not l- really her métier, you know. And, and so, Jill actually on this program once admitted it wasn't the happiest working experience yeah, for her. because so. she's not a lady of the musical theater. You know, she's a wonderful, wonderful actress, but – Anyway, six months go by and I hear that on the streets that she's leaving the show and they're auditioning for her replacement. And I called Eric. He said, they don't want to see you. So I ran into Merlin Jones, who was the property master of Pippin and later was the property master of Cats and, you know, any number of other shows that um, I've done. And he said, Betty, are you coming in for Catherine? And I said, "Uh, no, I heard that they didn't want to see me. And he said, I'll look into that. So two days later, I get this letter from Michael Shirtleff, the casting director, very famous casting director, saying, Dear Miss Buckley, since the inception of Pippin, we've been looking for you, but your agent told us you were out of the business. Please come in in such and such a time. Mr. Fossey's look, looking forward to meeting you. And I was, of course, ecstatic and at the same time really flummoxed. So I call uh, Eric Shepard and I said, read him the letter, and I said, What's this? And he goes, He said, Well, Betty, um, I represent Jill Clayburgh. And I didn't want her to have any competition, huh. and I could get more money for her. I think it was a hundred bucks more 
a week because she'd done a film and you hadn't. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And he says, you need to grow up. This is the nature of show business. And I said, you need to grow up and realize you're no longer my agent. And I fired him, you know, because I was just appalled that he wouldn't give me the shot. So anyway, I went into Pippin and got to work with Fosse. And Fosse was fantastic. He came back. And he directed me into the show, which is a very rare thing. Once a show is up and running, usually it's the stage manager that puts the replacement in. And sometimes, you know, a, a choreographer will come back or something. But, you know, Fosse literally came back, put me in the show, and um, it was fantastic. Hmm. And I was in it for a long time because I, at that point I was in therapy, you know, to get beyond my dad's oppression and resistance. And uh, I also was in, you know, acting school, you know, studying with all kinds of wonderful people and had to pay for all that. So I stayed in the show for a long time. I love the fact that you had to stay in a Broadway show for a long time to pay for acting school. I think there's there's a wonderful irony there. (laughs) I am going to skip ahead very quickly. You mentioned Gretchen Cryer earlier. And Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford wrote what was a hugely Mm -hmm. successful show called I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road. And you went into that at the public mm-hmm. and then did it out in Los Angeles as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. What I mean that's that well, was I did a it major on a, a role. 3 month uh, hiatus from 8 mm-hmm. is enough. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was like my second season on 8 is enough. Um, I well, was on the hiatus uh, maybe it was the second or third. It, may, it could have been the third. And it was so great to go from working in this factory like atmosphere of 8 is enough, uh, you know, on sound stages and for Lorimar Productions, which was no easy task. And it was a great school. Again, you know, big business, show business 101, you know, was the was the nature of this four-year school I went to while I was mm. doing Eight is Enough. And so I learned a lot, but it was just such a, you know, I was flying back to New York every six weeks for a voice lesson with this great teacher named Paul Gabbert that I studied with mm. for 19 and a half years. And I was, you know, he was really my mentor. And, um, I remember there was this uh, producer on Eight is Enough uh, named Greg Strangis who drove this like black Porsche and had sleek black hair and always wore black. And I was getting my Bundy rent a uh, which was an embarrassment to everybody in the show that I had this dented wrecked car as my car outside our soundstage. So Greg drives by me in his Porsche. He stops. He says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to New York. And he goes, why are you going there? And I said, to have a voice lesson. And he said, you know, you have such delusions of grandeur. He said, you'll be lucky if you play American mothers on television for the rest of your life. He said, why are you aspiring to be? You'll never sing on Broadway again. I said, we'll see, Greg, we'll see. Hmm. So anyway, I flew back and kept my studies up. And so I got to do this, the show on this hiatus, which was really refreshing. And then I went back into uh, It Is Enough that last season and in the middle of the last season of, that we did of the show, Gretchen opened the show at the Huntington Theater in um, L.A. And she did it for a few months, and then they asked me to come in and replace for the last six months of the run hmm. there. And so I was doing both. I was doing Eight is Enough wow. in the daytime and then racing to do my show at night, and it was fantastic. I but, had, no, but a large role, certainly, yeah, getting my I act loved together. It. You loved are it. the central the best, character. Best and, show. Fabulous. And the show. That's, that's remarkable. Mm. Then this guy, Lloyd Webber, comes into your life. <laughs> um, Cats had opened in London. Yeah. Was uh, smashed there. Uh-huh. How did you come to Cats and how did Cats come to you? Well, it, you know, I'd finished uh, getting my act together. And, you know, Eight is Enough uh, shut down production and then a few months later we found out it had been canceled. And so I was back in New York and after finishing getting my act together and I got the um, 
the film Tender Mercies. And in the interim, I uh, my agent sent me up for Cats. And we everybody had the cast album of Cats, but nobody quite knew what Cats was unless you'd flown to London and seen the show. So my agent called and said, you know, it's the role of Grizabella. It's the song Memory. It's a small part, but it's the pivotal, great song. And you got to learn this and you got to go sing for them. And I was like, okay. And so I listened to the recording and learned the song. And I went in and I auditioned. And my agent called me and said, they don't want to see you again because they say you radiate health and well-being. And they're looking for someone who radiates death and dying. Because Elaine Page had originated the role in London. And Elaine, as you know, is very, very petite. And I just had this feeling about it. I just knew that it was – I knew it. I knew I was going to get that show. And I just had a really powerful feeling about it. I knew who all the girls of my peer group in America that were capable and had the expertise to do the song and to do the part. I knew who they were. And they had all had their moment in musical theater. And I had yet to have that really defining, this is who I am as a, an artist in the musical theater. I've done a lot of musical theater, right. you know, in my youth, but then I'd gone off and done eight is enough for four years, the movie Carrie before that. And, you know, oh. some movies for television and stuff, but I was raring to go and had been kind of pent up with my longing for the musical theater for a number of years, but had maintained my studies and was ready to go. Hmm. And it was my turn basically. So I told her, I said, they'll be back. They went on and auditioned all over in L.A., everywhere, everywhere, you know, in, for six months. And six months later, she called back and she said, they want to see you again for Cats. And I said, I knew it. I told you. I went in and I sang Memory three times. And each time Trevor came up, Trevor Nunn, the brilliant director, and directed me to be more suicidal, more suicidal, more suicidal. So by the third time through, I was just – my soul was inside out and I was mm. singing for him and he still looked really perplexed. So as I, I said, may I speak to you for a moment? And he came down to the corner of the stage at the winter garden. And uh, I said, I know that you've seen everyone who could possibly do this part at this point. And there are any number of girls who can do this part as well as I can, but none of them can do it better. Mm. And I said, and it's my turn. And he looked at me like he thought I was nuts. Huh. And I said, I went on to say, if you think I'm too big, I'll lose weight. I said, if you think there's anything about me that is a, a, a question to you, if you can impart to me what your vision of this part is, I'm a very good actress at this point. I've, you know, I'm good. And I said, and I can deliver your vision of the part. Just trust me. Just let me hmm. let give me the shot, and so he just looked at me like he thought I was kind of nuts, and then I felt really embarrassed that I'd said all that. So then he thanked me, and I left. And the stage manager gives me a big thumbs up, and the rehearsal pianist gave me a big thumbs up. You know, the audition pianist. So I called my agent, whose name was Joanna Ross. She was great, and I said, uh, Joanna, this is what I. And she goes, Oh, when are you going to learn to keep your mouth shut? He's British. He doesn't want some. American actress that's going to talk his head off, you know, just like, you've got to learn to just go and do your work and keep your mouth shut. She said, you blew it. And I said, yeah, I probably did. So I took myself to this, my favorite restaurant for lunch, and I was kind of bemoaning my Texas girl brashness that I was, still didn't have completely in control. And the phone rings at the restaurant because she knew where I was, and they called me to the phone. And she said, are you sitting down? And, she, and I said, no. And so she said, sit down. So I sat down. She goes, you got the part. Uh, I <laughs> want to know, you know, as you were talking about, you hadn't had your role. 
For so many people, having your role is about having the biggest role. Mm. And that's not quite the case in Cats. Mm. You had the big song. Was that a concern? Not really. I didn't even know that it was so small until I went to see – eight years later, they flew me over to – well, no, it wasn't eight years later. It was a few years later. They flew me to London for the eighth anniversary of Cats to mm. sing Memory in the Curtain Call, which was a huge gift. You know, uh, Cameron McIntosh flew me over and gave me a week in a beautiful hotel and let me – you know, got me theater tickets for every play I could possibly see. I was – I saw everything you could see. It was a perfect vacation for me. And then I sang Memory at the end of the week. So I went to see the London Company, and I'd never seen the show except in the run-throughs that we, you know, had done in, in the theater. I've, you know, seen bits and pieces, but I'd never been an audience member having the experience of cats. And so as the people ran by, you know, in their cat costumes and stuff, I would want to touch them, you know, the <laughs> same way they'd want to touch us. I was like, this is so cool, you know, and I'm waiting and waiting for Grisabella and finally she comes on and then she goes off and then she comes on and then she goes off and I'm like, oh my God, that's a tiny little part. And then I remembered that I was really only on stage for 13 minutes of this entire production. There are no small roles. That, but it's the killer song. And it was, uh, for me, the way I was directed in the show Grizabella was always there because he wanted me always on the outskirts trying to be a part of the group. Mm -hmm. So I was always there. So to me, I was never not there. You know, I was with the tribe just trying to be a part of things and they wouldn't let me. But mm. anyway, it was really fun. Well, let's stay with Lord Lloyd Webber for a couple of minutes. Um, Song and Dance, uh -huh. which you went into. The opportunity to do an entire musical – Yourself, We know Song and Dance is two halves, but you were doing yeah. Tell Me on a Sunday. And uh, what was that experience, to be alone on a stage well, doing a the blast. entire story? Well, it's a You know, a um, long time ago, it was called um, Tell Me on a Sunday as a television show. And Roger Hess, that original agent who then went on to become a producer, tried to buy the property or you know get the rights to the property from Andrew years and years and years before Song and Dance came to New York. And Andrew wouldn't let them have it because Roger wanted me to get to do it. And so I knew about the property from years prior to its run in New York. And then, of course, Bernadette did it, Bernadette Peters, and I was in The Mystery of Edward Drood across the street. And um, at a party, I said to Bernie Jacobs and uh, Jerry Schoenfeld. Who I ran said, the Schubert organization. Yeah. yeah, they were a couple of my friends. And I just said, you know, I'd really like to play that part someday whenever Bernadette decides to leave. Just, you know, let me play it. So they called me because she had to leave to go do a television movie. And the play was winding down anyway. But they said, do you want to come in and just do it for the last six weeks since Bernadette's leaving? Hmm. And I had just left Rude. And I said, yeah. And so I, I went in and did it for six weeks, the last six weeks. And it was a wonderful experience. It was hmm. really, really fun. Which leads us to Norma Desmond <laughs> in London and on Broadway ultimately. I've read you say that's one of the two great parts of your career. Yeah. What was it about playing Nora Desmond that so appealed to you? Well, first of all, it's a great musical and the you know, the music's great and the character is fantastic and I'd seen the film of course and I don't know, for years I would say to people because I trained so hard, you know, as an actress and as a singer. And for the majority of except for moments um, except for like tender mercies or, you know, here and there moments in my career, I've always felt um, 
kind of overqualified. You know, like even Graziella Danielle said to me at one point, she said, you know, Betty, you should consider expanding into other things like directing and writing or whatever. And she says, because you're really overqualified hmm. <laughs> as an actor, singer, which is a nice thing for her to say. But, you know, I was like, God, Graziella. And she said, you know, well, she said, just, you know, you need to be honest about that because – but I, I always felt like this little racehorse that people would take out and breeze in the morning and say, damn, she's fast, you know. But then they would never give me the big stuff, the big races to run, hmm. you know. So finally, when they called me to do Sunset, which was very surprising because they hadn't called me originally to do it. And yet Bertie Jacobs went to London. He saw the show and he came back and he and his wife called me and said, get ready. You're going to do this part. And I said, I don't think so. And, and they said, this is your part. And I said, okay, whatever. And then people would call me and say, you know, run into me on the street and say, you're going to play this part. And I said, I don't think so. And they said, they're going to call you. You'll see. And so then out of the blue one day, my agent called and said, they're flying you to London. And they want to keep you there for several days, teach you the score. And then you're going to audition for Trevor and Andrew. So I did. I went for several days. They put me up in this beautiful hotel, taught me the whole score. My audition lasted an hour and ten minutes, hmm. which was like – ridiculously long and I did every song from the show several times both for Trevor his directing me over and over again and then Andrew and they still didn't make up their minds they they like to go through this whole process it's pretty wild a week later after I came back to New York they called and offered me the role and I was just thrilled you know because it was such a huge deal. It was like I'm a, a very athletic performer. You know, I think of myself as a kind of athlete. Well, you get a workout in that show, just the yeah. staircase. Well, but in in general, it's like and I like being challenged, but I and I'm a very strong person. But this part required that I be even stronger than I was and that I train even harder. So it was like it was like preparing for the Olympics or something. It was an outrageously difficult thing, but fantastic. It was too of the most blissful years of my life, a year in London and a year on Broadway. It was fantastic. And the satisfaction was finally having the role that that you felt challenged you. It used all the skills I have, hmm. you know, because I've got some skills at this point and not every part will ask all of that from you, you know, as, as hmm. a singing actress, storyteller, communicator, you know, you just don't – there are very few parts that require you to go full tilt boogie, hmm. you know, for the duration of a show like that and then produced as only Andrew can produce and directed as only Trevor can direct. It's like in a production that is like so amazing. Like I would sing as if we never said goodbye, you know, in the second half of the show every night and I would just be – I would be just in rapture because it took approximately 200 people working in that moment to create that one perfect moment. Members of the orchestra and the crew and the actors and the design and the – it was just an outrageous technical deal so that it, I'm like the quarterback in the moment, right, mm -hmm. You know, singing that song. But the magic that's being created around you, there's like 200 human beings at work to wow. create that. And it was just remarkable. You know, I'd be standing on stage listening to the complexity of the strings and the, you know, the horns and stuff in the orchestra, you know, with the David Cullen arrangements, you know, just being like, 
damn, I never heard that before. That is so perfect. You know, it's just, it was exquisite. And the costumes that were built by Barbara Matera and um, Tricorn and designed by Anthony Powell were just like amazing. And the shoes that I wore, you know, and everything. And then the dresser team in the 25 second, 30 second quick changes, Mm. you know, nothing was underdressed. was just like a remarkable it was a remarkable accomplishment in every single way and I got to be a part of that and it was just fantastic. Mm. Now, we have glancingly mentioned Triumph of Love early in this. We've glancingly mentioned Drood, but I cannot let pass asking you about Carrie, the musical. Mm-hmm. You had been in the film as mm-hmm. the kindly gym teacher. Miss Collins. Um, yeah. And when this musical came around, Barbara Cook was – going to be doing it and ultimately chose not to. Well, originally, to. they came to me and offered me this show. Hmm. And um, when they called me, the Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford and uh, Larry Cohen, Larry Cohen wrote the screenplay of Carrie. And of course, I knew Michael and Dean. I, I've been a friend of Dean's for years. Dean was my first Pippin. He was uh, John Rubenstein's understudy huh. in Pippin, or standby. And so when I was uh, you know, being directed into the show. Dean was my uh, Pippin in rehearsal until I went into the show. So I'd been his friend for a really long time. And they called me and said, you know, we've made a musical of Carrie. And I said, why? And they said, oh, we think it's going to be great. And I said, really? And they, they said, yeah, we think it's a really great idea for a musical. And I was like, okay. And they said, we want you to play Margaret, the crazy mother. And I was like, oh, okay. So Terry Hans was this director from the RSC and was the director of the RSC and, um, in Stratford, he was the director, and so we started negotiating. We, for, we negotiated for three months, and we couldn't come to terms. Hmm. I let it go. I just said, you yeah, know, you know, because I felt that my contribution was was relevant in, hmm. at that point. So they moved on. They went to the Royal Shakespeare Company version in Stratford with Barbara Cook, and did a more. She's a very different kind of performer. I am. I love Barbara Cook. I think she's Absolutely. one of the greatest voices ever, and exquisite performer. But um, you know, she did more of a concert-esque version um, because she's not that kind of athlete on stage. And so anyway, the show had problems and some very big stylistic problems. And they got horrendous reviews in England. And they called – she decided she was not coming into New York with it. And so she let it go and they came back to me. And we continued negotiating until the night before rehearsals were supposed to start. My agent called and said, you know, if you don't go in, all these people are going to be out of work basically. And they've Mm. spent like $8.5 million for nothing. So what do you want to do? And I just said, okay. So he he negotiated this final version of the deal and I went in and um, they had really been beat up by these reviews and stuff. And so – um, I went to work with Lindsay Haightley, who is 17 and from England, and we we really created some very dynamic uh, scenes in the mother-daughter sequences, which were very divorced from the high school stuff. And Terry Hands just had a concept of the show that was really about, as he described it, Jacobian drama, and it had very little to do with the Americana story that was what Carrie really is. But we did some incredible work, and the score is really, really operatic, and it had this outrageous 
these audiences that were just the, some of the wildest audiences I've ever performed for. You know, hmm. it's like I'd be at the top of the stairs for the last scene, and people would be in the audience, like saying, screaming out at the, calling, talking to us, not as our characters, but as ourselves. Like one night, people were like, "Come on down, Betty Buckley," you know, from the huh. top of the Virginia Theater because they weren't taking it seriously. It had some very divergent styles to it. I think what we should have used is gone with that. I think if they had gone with the – people would come in costume so and repeat certain lines. So as if the it had gone as become Rocky Horror? Exactly. If it had become that kind of event musical, hmm. which it was. But we got very mixed reviews you know, after the preview period and stuff. And we got some of the worst reviews I've ever read, but also the some of the greatest reviews I've ever read. And Lindsay and I came out of it kind of squeaky clean. And I think if the producer who had gone into such debt to get it to that point, his we thought we were going to press forward, and they were bringing in some other investors to you know push the PR past the reviews. But they decided to pull the plug because he was already in hawk up, up to his eyeballs. So they just pulled the plug on it and, and it closed. There are rumblings of a new production. I've heard about that. Do you yeah. believe it's a show worthy of rediscovery? Absolutely. I think the score is stunning. I think the score is just – I think a couple of things needed to be cut and there need, needed to be a different stylistic approach to the storytelling. Uh, Terry Hands is a was an amazing – is an amazing artistic director but – you know, like the high school gymnasium at the end after uh, Carrie kills everybody. It was like a white Aztec staircase with a red rail down. It was beautiful to look at, but it, what did it have to do with anything? You know, there's just so many ill-conceived things about the style of its presentation. But the musical itself is – it's got – it's some beautiful, beautiful music. The you know the mother daughter stuff is just it's operatic in proportion. It's gorgeous. For all the things I've skipped over, I want to ask you. It seems, if my research is correct, you've had a couple of opportunities to play Mama Rose. Uh-huh. I in did it Gypsy. once at the Southern Arizona Light Opera Company in my late. I can't remember. It's about I was, 92. I was pretty young to be doing it at that mm-hmm. point. I didn't feel like I was mature enough. And then I did it at the Paper Mill Playhouse, and that version was I, was very well received. The character of Mama Rose seems like the musical comedy equivalent of playing Hamlet, if you're a man. If for so many, it's a mountain that, that so many actresses want to climb, and everybody has their own take on her. What was your take on Mama Rose? I made her sexy. You know, I made her as sexy as I could. You know, I I, I felt made her a real manipulator based on her femaleness and her um, – and I made her human. Arthur Lawrence came to see it as did Sondheim and um, he didn't like my interpretation. Wait, he, who didn't? Arthur Lawrence. Mm-hmm. He said that um, – what did he say? He said, well – he said, you're a vir- virtuoso. He said that a couple of times. And he said, but you don't know how to play this part. And I um, I just gotten rave reviews from all the critics in the New York Times. And, you know, we the audience was going nuts <laughs> eight times a week. And he'd just seen a performance where we stopped the show like four or five times with full house standing ovations. Hmm. And we came off the stage knowing that Lawrence and Sondheim were there and we were all ecstatic. And I walked off stage and said to my dresser, I said, we nailed it. We can't do it better than that. Hmm. I said, it's can't. It's, that was as good as we can do. Hmm. So if they didn't like it, it's not our fault. Huh. You know, we gave our all. And so when I got backstage, Sondheim was there and I said, 
he said, he'll tell you, he'll tell you. And I was like, I heard later that he had said he'd never heard it sung like that. And that was really a nice compliment. But Lawrence was not happy. So I said, well, Mr. Lawrence, I'm happy to do exactly what you want me to do with it. Could I call you? And he said, yeah, yeah, you can do that. And um, I called him and had a conversation with him, and it was pretty peppery. I I just said, you know, I'm happy to do what you said. And he was very um, – I, you know, I won't go into all the details of that, but um, suffice it to say um, – he didn't endorse my version of it. And it was a big disappointment because, you know, he wrote my two favorite musicals, which are Gypsy and West Side Story. And, you know, Sondheim, everybody in the musical theater worships Sondheim. And so, you know, I've spent from my childhood wanting to please these two dudes, you know, and I was mm. just like anything to please them. And it, it was a real, it was a very sobering experience because I had done a piece of work that I knew was among the best things I've ever done. And had been completely endorsed, and then the Mervishes wanted to move it on to um, to Toronto, and uh, Arthur wouldn't let them take mm. it. But it, it kind of broke that childhood hero worship for me. I mean, I still think they're the greatest, you know, but I know what I did was of value, and I know what I did had a lot of heart and soul, and so that's mm. that. Mm-hmm. Well, right now you are bringing joy through comedy in White's Lies and I don't even have to ask the question. Coming up, you're going to do Arsenic and Old Lace down in Texas? Yes. Scott Schwartz is uh, directing. William Ivy Long is doing the costumes and it's with Tova Felcha and I'm so oh, excited golly. to get to work with her. <laughs> and we're doing it for a month. Well, it'll be two months including rehearsal at the Dallas Theater Center but everybody's hoping that it'll – be a production that will move and we'll see what happens. But it's such a fun play. It's a blast. Well, it sounds great. And thank you, Betty Buckley, for giving us all this time today. Thank you, Howard. Enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate it. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing. Follow me on Twitter as H.E. Sherman and follow our guest today, Betty Buckley, at Betty Buckley on Twitter. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. And if we want to become your friend, Betty, on Facebook. At Betty Buckley. At Betty Buckley. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.